Blog Talk Radio. Yes, it is I, Chuck Morse, Monday through Friday, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time as we forge forward into another day of live broadcasting right here at Blog Talk Radio at Cyber Station USA Radio Network. I'd like to welcome aboard my affiliate stations, our affiliate stations, WWPRAM in Tampa Bay, Florida, KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, and of course, uh, we are entering into the, into the Christmas season. I want to wish all of Americans a Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year. And I do uh, say Merry Christmas to all. Uh, Christmas, I view, is the ultimate, if not the penultimate American holiday uh, in that what could be more American, as it were, than celebrating the birth of Jesus? Uh, Jesus is the father of um, the very system the very laws, the very culture that has made this country what it is. Had it not been for Jesus and his ministry, we probably wouldn't be who we are today. And I think that there are a lot of areas that we could point to. And I'm saying this, by the way, as someone who is not Christian in the, in the sense that I believe in the divinity of Jesus. I'm, I'm more interested, as I think most of the world is, besides Christians, non-Christian world that is, in his ministry, in his in his methods, in what he taught. And possibly one of the greatest examples of his ministry uh, was when he stood up to the Roman Empire as one man standing up against the empire that ruled the world at that time. I mean, you have to realize that in Jesus' day, Rome was at the pinnacle of its power. It controlled much of Germany. It controlled England and Wales and, and on the borders of Scotland, but it also controlled much of Arabia, controlled France, Spain, Italy, the Alps, Romania, parts of Eastern Europe, Turkey, the Middle East, North Africa. I mean, it was huge. The, the Mediterranean Sea was a lake, controlled all of it. And it was authoritarian. You know, this was uh, the, the emperor was also uh, God in their conception. And when Jesus came onto the onto the patio in front of the home of um, of Pontius Pilate in Caesarea on the coast, which was the Roman capital of Judea, um, Pontius Pilate asked him who he answered to, who sent you, and Jesus turned to him and he said, "I answer to a higher authority." I don't answer to the state. And I think that when Jesus did that, he struck a blow against big government. He struck a blow for the individual. Um, He struck a blow for the emergence. And and again, Jesus and his times were the sort of the transition period from ancient times, pagan times, to modern times, to uh, monotheistic times. Um, it was kind of the, the the entire Roman Empire really was the bridge empire for that, and as such, I think on that one moment, 
Jesus launched mankind into the modern world. He, he launched modern civilization. This idea that rights do not come from the state. Rights and power does not emanate from a group of elites who run a government. But in fact, they come from the individual, under God. Now, why is it important? And that's what Jesus said he was. He was an individual. He was a man. But he was something more. Now, whether he was God himself or the Son of God, those are questions for, for churches to decide. But the fact is that he was recognizing that man is more than just, first of all, man is more than just an animal. We're more than just a physical uh, bag of matter. But that there was a spiritual side. And that, that as such, which and as such, in that we were created in the image of a God, of God, which is a very biblical theme and scientific. We could not. We we recognize higher truths. We recognize certain truths, certain moral and ethical precepts, that would not be able to be manipulated by a Roman emperor, or by his agent Pontius Pilate. And so thus Jesus stood up to Pilate. And he answered the calling of something greater. And I think because of that, his ministry and much of other things, but because of that particular event at the end of his ministry, probably within minutes of his being crucified, um, he, is, he has inspired mankind ever since. All of mankind, whether you're Christian or not. And he also established the very principle upon which the American Republic is based, which is the rights come from the creator, not from the state. Rights are inherent. They're not made up. They're not manufactured. They're real. And this factor very well may, if it not does, underlie why it is that the left, or that the secularists, as it were, despise religion, particularly Christian religion. Um, and that's not new, by the way. I mean, look at Jesus himself was despised in his own day. But I think it has become particularly virulent in recent decades in the United States. Either that or it's become more noticeable in the United States because it was never here before. Americans have always admired the Christian faith. You know, it was not controversial to do so. And people who didn't were viewed askance. Now, certainly in the French Revolution and in Europe, they, they, they had stopped admiring it, and we saw the results. But Americans... We're not of that ilk. We were not part of that progressive movement, as it were. It's only been in recent decades, really. I mean, starting toward the end of World War II, but accelerating in recent decades. That we see this inexplicable, unexplainable, irrational, and even hysterical hatred of religion by the left. I mean, really, what exactly did, does, you know, on an individual basis, 
on a practical basis, it's hard to understand. Because exactly what is it that religious Christians have done to hurt someone on the left? Were, were they bullying them in the schoolyard as kids? I don't know. I mean, did they, uh, you know, have they on a national level, are they blowing up buildings? Are they going into schools with machine guns and killing children? I mean, what have they done to, to, to warrant this kind of hatred? I mean, these are people who mind their own business. They they ask, maybe they might at times be a little obnoxious when it comes to asking people to come to Christ. I'll grant that. But does it really rise to the level of this kind of scorn, this kind of hatred? And it's, you know, a hatred that is embraced by people who one might assume, based on conventional wisdom, would be tolerant, would not be filled with that kind of hatred, would uh, be accepting of those to whom they don't agree. And I certainly understand not agreeing. I understand having opposition. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this blind hatred, this desperate hatred. I have seen trends over this past year or so in particular by liberals uh, who, by, and, and by liberal I mean in the American ten, ten sense, people on the left, who claim that they're religious people, they want religious people to be banned from speaking out in public. They want it to be made illegal for them to advocate uh, public policies for them to speak out loudly about their belief system. You know, they think it should be made illegal. They claim that there is some kind of a law that would, would, would make it so. I've not seen anything like that presented. I've never seen a Supreme Court decision, a federal court, a state court decision that has ever declared that a religious person cannot express their political opinion. But they insist that this is so. I mean, you certainly could find that true in both um, Nazi and Soviet socialist systems. They allow religions to exist by name, but they completely control what they say. That What they do and what they say has to conform to the dictates of their state. But not in this country. We haven't done that here. You know, it's a great tradition that, that religious uh, people speak out. Now, the other day on this program, I had David Pakman on. And he's a good progressive young man who does a show out in Western Mass. Very nice guy, by the way, and very smart. And I like having him on. You know, we, we have a great debate. I will note that he won't put me on his show, but that's okay. <laughs> this is a very competitive business. And he insisted that religious people should not be allowed to uh, speak in public. And when I pointed it out to him, he said, no, that's not really what I said. You know, the usual runaround, people can listen to the podcast to make up their own mind. But, but his justification was, well, two things. First of all, religious people are dogmatic, that they don't, they're not thought out. They don't, they're not questioning in, in, a, in an intellectual way what it is they believe. They're just simply following a book and, and saying, well, the Bible says it, so here it is. 
And secondly, he pointed out with scorn that you have Protestant ministers, and he mentioned one in particular, that being Pat Robertson, who have claimed that God is doing things on earth to either reward or punish people and nations. And that this is a view that he views with detestation. There's something horrible about that. I don't know what's wrong with that. I mean, to my way of thinking, those are valid opinions. I I think that one might go a little too far if they actually say, well, God actually came to me through my TV set (laughs) or by some other media. Then I get a little suspicious. But the whole, the idea of looking at the, the Bible and saying, you know, this is this is what God has in mind for human behavior, for national behavior, for ethics, for morals. And that if we don't do those things, then there will be consequences. I don't think that that's an unreasonable position to take. Why would that make someone so angry? I don't know. You know, he mentions Pat Robertson. Well, I have news for him. There's another Christian minister, a Protestant minister, who was very prominently making these very same statements, uh, who believed that God was, um, you know, wanted America to live up to the true meaning of our creed, he said, our creed being our faith. And that was none other than the late, great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I think there was also another Republican president besides George W. Bush, who often spoke of the destiny of America. That would be Abraham Lincoln. This is a part of American tradition, but it's also part of American reality, that people do believe that there is a divine aspect in our lives. There are divine elements to what happens in the world. We don't know what they are necessarily, but we get a hint of what they are when we take a look at I would contend, and I say this mainly as a as a Jew, but uh, when we take a look at the uh, moral decalogue of the of the Torah of the Bible, what God is suggesting we do and not do, what sorts of relationships we should have and not have, what sorts of business interactions we should have and not, how nations should interact and how they should not, rules of war, rules of labor, rules of uh, all sorts of things that set the stage for a genuinely progressive society, one in which an individual can thrive in a context of freedom, but within also a context of basic assumed natural laws. And yet this structure, this structure that clearly has provided the foundation for this republic more than any other nation in history is one that absolutely sets the left off in in a, in a howls of rage and it's not explained there's no explanation for it recently um mike huckabee mentioned in in the aftermath of the mass murder in connecticut in newtown connecticut that he believed that the cause of this was the stripping away of God from education. Now, I was invited on a radio show actually yesterday over at Unregular Radio, and the host was very, very liberal. He was absolutely 
boiling with rage over this. How could he say this? And, you know, I'm a guest there, so I want to be polite. You know, plus I'm I'm kind of working with them on different projects, so <laughs> I don't want to... I don't want to superimpose myself too much, but I very kind of quietly and gently asked him before I had to leave to put money in the meter, uh, exactly why do you think that's a problem? I mean, I, I, you know, are they hurting, are people getting hurt by that? You know, these are people who are trying to do, live the good life. They're advocating others do the same. Why should they not be able to do that when everyone else can? You know, because their belief comes from their faith, Therefore, they can't. They have to be banned. Why? Can you show me where it's, it says that it's illegal for them to do that? That's not true. I've never heard that. There might be some radical left-wing legal groups that want to try to claim that in the Constitution, but they've not been able to do it. You know, it is. You know, it is just as much the right of the religious to espouse their their outlook on things as it is for the non-religious. And I would argue that the religious argument, if you have such an argument, both on an, a spiritual plane but also on a practical and scientific plane, usually is and most often is the superior argument. Um, David Pakman asks me, well, why is it that God no longer is acting on earth like he did in the days of the Bible? You know, as if I'm supposed to know that. I mean, I have no idea. No one knows. You can look to rabbis or priests or ministers to speculate on that based upon the thinking and the great thinking of uh, generations of people going back a thousand years. But ultimately, no one knows because God is a mystery. You know, the whole issue of um, of the, the um, creation story is shrouded in mystery. Anyone who is half reasonable and is a religious person will tell you that. You know, the, the, in the beginning. In the beginning of what? We don't know how it happened. God gives a little hint in that story in terms of how it happened. And there were a couple of kernels in there that give us a basic moral and ethical structure upon which we are to understand the workings of, of our lives and of, the, of humanity. But there's also a great deal there that is shrouded in mystery. So there's nothing dogmatic about it. The only dogmatism I see is on the on the left. David Pakman and, and others, I'm not, I don't mean to single him out again because he's a very nice man, but you, you know this idea that uh, insistence that the earth is millions of years old and the people who, know, who question that are anti-science. I mean, that's dogmatism, and it's also very bad science. Science is supposed to be an open inquiry. Science is supposed to, the way the scientific process works is that the scientific researcher presents a, a theory that is published in a, in a recognized peer review, and then there's comments on that. There's further research on it. Some of it is winnowed away, others of it is embraced, mainly because it's been experimented upon and found to be true. And then you build another theory. But in the process, a lot of things get overturned. I mean, for example, Sigmund Freud is recognized as, for better or for worse, I'd say for the worse, but nevertheless, 
He's recognized as the founder of modern psychology. But most psychologists and, and the psychological you know, institutions and, and the science of psychology at this point have rejected most of his theories, not because he was a bad man, but because there's been advancement in knowledge. And in the process of that advancement, theories that seemed valid at the time with Sigmund Freud came up with them, which was the turn of the 20th century, no longer seem valid because of new evidence. Same thing with Darwin, I would contend. Should be anyways, but no. And by the way, Darwin was not quite the same as Freud. Darwin really was a dogmatist, if you look at his writings. He did not like anybody questioning his theory. Um, you know, there's a pretty interesting exchange of letters, for example, between Darwin and 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 uh, Alfred Wallace, who was also a world-renowned evolutionist at the time and who was a very close collaborator of Darwin. When Wallace questioned a part of the Darwin's theory of evolution, he made note of the fact that the theory contradicted faith, that he considered himself to be religious, and that... Um, he questioned whether or not um, all of man had emerged from a common life form. And Darwin went absolutely ape crap over this. He had a complete meltdown. You know, it was like Wallace would be banished from the establishment for even suggesting it. His letters are dripping with rage. How could you say this? And then Wallace backed down mainly because I think Wallace wanted to be part of this elite establishment that had a lot invested in Darwin's theory as a fact, to, to present it as fact. I mean, in my opinion, this was one of the world's great big lies. But bringing things back up to the present, it's not scientific. It's, it's bad science for anyone to suggest that any theory is absolute fact. And people who believe in the Bible understand that the Bible itself is not presented in many areas as absolute fact because there's mystery in it. There are unknowns. But anyway, bringing things back to my original thoughts here, why is it why is it today in our times that the left despises religion to the extent that it does? Why? And by the way, by religion, I'm, I'm talking uh, Christianity, uh, religious Christianity mostly, and for Jews, religious Judaism, you know, Orthodox Judaism. And I think that the answer is not an easy one to come up with. But there are a couple of things we may observe. Firstly, people who embrace religion, people who embrace religious Judaism and Christianity, regardless of what they are about in their own private life, they could be corrupt, the most corrupt and immoral people around. But nevertheless, their, their public embrace of religion creates an illusion, at least, of someone who admires right and wrong and understands it and strives toward it, you know, and who recognizes it and who often is a more righteous person, not always by any means. 
And I think that when you have such a position, it always bothers people. It always results in resentment because it requires that we all look within ourselves and think about our own shortcomings, our own failings, or or maybe not necessarily think about them consciously. Maybe I'm getting psychological here, but, um, you know, there are things that we're avoiding looking at. Most of us have these things in their lives. I certainly do. And thinking about someone who's religious or thinking about religion, which presents certain absolute truths, it bothers you because it forces you to look within. And most of us don't want to do that. So we, 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 we lash out at the object outside of us that is causing us this kind of discomfort. So I think that because of that, it's natural that there's always going to be people who disdain and, and, and uh, scorn religion, because religion does do that. It does present a coherent body of ideals that it presents as not only true, but as good and as right and as wrong. So we don't want to be reminded of it. It bothers us. The issue is also political in that the left is a political system. It's a political belief that is all about earthly power. Uh, it is all about victory. It's about pre- you know, prevailing over the opponent. You know, they complain about competition. Well, th- th- this could be nothing more competitive than this idea, and, and it's filled with a messianic sense of rightness <clears throat> that that they have some kind of a a divine providence to control the world, to control people, and to use the, the nations and to use citizens as part of their petri dish. I believe this is how they think. This is how they view the world. It may not be conscious, but it's what they see, how they see it. They believe that they can transform man on earth and they believe that belief in a God is, the person that believes in a God is standing in the way of that, is standing in the way of that progress. Because there's a person who, like Jesus himself, answers to a higher authority. They don't answer to Pilate. And I think that's largely, or at least that's partially why, left-wingers, at least subconsciously, feel that they must stop religion, they must destroy it, or they must neutralize it to the point where it has no more meaning than nice-looking stained-glass windows and artwork. They cannot have a philosophy that competes with their own, one in which people are empowered and in which people feel that they are not answering to the manipulative uh, dictates of other people, but they are answering to a higher authority. Okay, we're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Chuck Moore Speaks. You're certainly welcome to join the broadcast, 347-327-9849, 347-327-9849. And if I can get this thing to trigger, then we shall take a break. If not, then we shall not take a break. It doesn't look like it's really working too well, so I guess that we won't take a break. Um what well, I think that I'm getting a Skype crash apparently. Oh, there we go.
are back, 347-327-9849. I'm hoping we're back. I'm having a little bit of a sticky computer today. 347-327-9849 is the number. Um, the news, the big news today is that the um, this the so-called commission to investigate the uh, the murders in Benghazi has released its report, and that report, from what I can tell, and this is just coming in as I went on the air today, so I haven't a chance to read it in depth. I, I'm looking at several articles, but uh, it looks to me like it is a colossal whitewash. It is a cover-up. In many ways similar, it reminds me, to uh, the, what I contend was a whitewash, not as bad, but somewhat of a whitewash regarding the 9-11 Commission report, in that it didn't name any names. It didn't call anyone's actions to task. It just kind of had a vague sort of Washington you know, well, I mean, it's a bureaucracy problem. No kidding, you know. And that their recommendations were, and then they blamed the guards in Benghazi. They were like, well, these people were on strike because they weren't getting paid enough. I'm sure they were on strike. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're, they're seeing all these terrorists pop around and these Al-Qaeda people, you know, and they're like, hey, I'm not, my life is worth more than a few bucks an hour here. But... um it doesn't get to the bigger picture, which is why didn't the State Department and the Obama administration do something about this when the ambassador and others in Benghazi were, were sending pleas and saying, we're in big trouble here, where our lives are at risk. Do something. And when they had the funds to do it, there was no – where are the Republicans? I mean, there, there's no one basically calling for – hearings that would actually subpoena the president of the United States, for one thing. Hillary Clinton has ducked out of it because by saying, well, she has a headache. Apparently she got some kind of a mild concussion recently. So she's like, oh, like, you know, I can't come in. You know, like she's writing a letter to your the first grade teacher. You know, I, I sorry, I'm sick. I can't come in today. So she's not answering for anything. They're crafty people, aren't they, the Clintons? They really, the two of them, their entire career, they're like a bunch of vampires leeching off the public and just always one little step ahead of the law. Always just a little slippery. You know, they're both brilliant lawyers, and they've used their legal skills to get away with maybe even murder, (laughs) certainly when you look back at the Clinton years. And and always do so, doing so in such a way that um, they're able to slip along right through the cracks, just one little step ahead of investigation, one little step ahead of impeachment, although Clinton didn't totally bite that bullet. Um, and, and here we go again, Hillary, the, uh, the um, you know, Secretary of State, ducking out of uh, congressional hearings on one of the biggest disasters to befall the our foreign policy in, in many decades, the murder of our ambassador and three other Americans overseas, in, and the, the, the firebombing of the embassy. She ducks. She's the Secretary of State, and she's able to duck out of it by, by saying she doesn't feel well. I guess that everything else had been tried. So anyway, you know, the, um, the Benghazi report says, well, the State Department had bureaucratic failures. You know, somehow this vague 
you know, claim without mentioning any names or mentioning what particular failures. And then what is the solution to the problem? Very liberal, typical liberal solution. Send money. Write a bigger check. You know, we're going to give you more money for this. We're going to reward them for this. I mean, yeah, I suppose that is how government works. It, it's it's part of the system. It's not, uh, in, in that sense, that's true, in that when you have a government agency, in this case the State Department, could be any agency, they are there technically to deal with a problem, you know. I mean, and, and these are legitimate problems, by the way. I mean, these are cabinet offices. I mean, the Secretary of State has to deal with America's uh, – position in the world we have to, it's a it's a diplomatic corps they have to conduct uh, relations and negotiations with nations around the world both friend and foe that's what they're there for but when there's a problem the agency thrives you know i mean presidents the famous presidents are those who uh, went to war agencies are able to uh, increase their size increase their budget hire more people you know, when there's a problem, because their reason to exist is accentuated. You know, I mean, the, the Attorney General's office, the Department of Justice, they thrive when they have more crime because they, they have to be bigger to, to deal with the crime. And, of course, the the sad part of this phenomena is that this is true with regard to any public agency, any agency that is supported by taxpayer money. So then if you have welfare agencies, if you have social service agencies, they thrive and they do better when they have more clients, when they have more case studies. And I'm not kidding. You know, a social service agency, let's say like a welfare agency, let's say it's a welfare agency that's set up to deal with um, alcoholism among welfare recipients. Once a year or however often it happens, probably once a year, that agency has to go to their bosses on the state or federal level, and they have to say, hey, we have this many cases. And then the boss will say, well, we need you to get more cases so we can send in more money. We can give you a bigger grant so we can also give you all raises so we can expand your office. And if you have less cases, we're going to have to cut back. You're going to have to lose employees. You're going to have to cut back on your expenses. So the, what is the incentive? The incentive is to get more cases. Now, that's a corruption. It's a corruption because we would think conventionally that we want to get rid of situations where you have alcoholism amongst people on welfare. You want to solve the problem or reduce the problem to the point where it's not as big. That would be what we would expect. That's what we taxpayers want to see happen. If we're going to send money to an agency to address hunger, we're hoping that the hunger will be reduced in this country, that there would be less people who are hungry, that there will be more people who are self-sufficient. All Americans, I think, do not want to have their fellow citizens hungry. We don't want that in this country, you know. This is a land of plenty. But the problem is that the public agency dealing with the problem 
has an incentive not only to perpetrate the problem but to have it grow because the more the problem exists, the more they get they get bonuses. I'm not criticizing them for this. I'm simply pointing out that this is how it works. When the public sector gets involved in a particular situation, it becomes a perverse incentive. Now, with a private agency, on the other hand, their incentive is to reduce the problem because the more they can reduce the problem and the more effective they are, the more money they get. In other words, like, for example, there was an agency years ago in Washington that was a completely private agency, didn't take a single penny of government money, and they were dealing with the homeless problem by setting up this house and having people not only live there, but they were training them, they were getting them a good pair of clothes, they were getting their hair cut, they were, you know, putting them in, they were, they were basically consulting with them, talk to them about how to apply for a job, you know, they were putting those people, these homeless men and women, they were bringing them into the shelter, and they were putting them on their feet. They were actually giving them jobs in the shelter, doing work for the shelter, like running, helping with the kitchen, helping as waiters and you know, dishwashers and, and other kitchen help. And then when they started to make money, they would help them. They would have people there who would consult with them. This is how you apply for a job. This is how you get an apartment. This is how you, you know, buy clothes and, and, and do all of the other things you need to do to become self-sufficient. And uh, this agency was successful. There's, I think that 60 Minutes did a piece on it. This is years ago. I don't recall exactly. But they were successful, which was why they attracted donations, because the American people want to help this problem. We saw success. We saw results. And as a result... We wanted to support those efforts. But if it's a government agency, the as I said, the, the incentive is the opposite. So getting back to what I was talking about here, kind of rambling today, that's okay. The Benghazi Review Board has been a whitewash. They didn't name any person. They didn't take in any testimony. And they're basically giving everybody a pass. And... Uh, Meanwhile, our ambassador, Chris Stevens, has been murdered, as has three, as have three other American personnel in one of the worst, the worst um, military and, and diplomatic instances in, in recent times. So, of course, the other subject that we have to talk about, we can't not talk about, is the shooting. Um, I'm certainly not going to... Uh, Stop talking about this. Am I off the air? Okay, sorry about that. Just having a few minor technical problems here. Um, my computer is a little sticky today. Anyways, getting back to uh, the discussion. Um, and by the way, CyberStation, I am back. Sorry about that. Everybody back on board here. Um, getting back to the discussion, we have to talk about um, about the business of um, of the Connecticut shooting. 
I am certainly not going to let this go. And I don't think anyone else is either. Um, let me just let me just put this in here. The um, there he is. Thank you. Okay. The you know the, the main focus of, of this of the discussion has been. Um, the, the business of semi-automatic rep weapons, and I'm not here to say that that's not a, a legitimate part of this. I mean, I don't think, frankly, that uh, th that people should have semi-automatic weapons. I, I agree with that. Um, you know, maybe I'm liberal on that one, but, uh, you know, I, I remember when I was running for Congress, I actually was invited to speak at a gun club, <laughs> and these were, like, pretty tough guys, and I remember I was there with my with my media um, advisor, Ben Kilgore, who booked the thing. And Ben and I show up at this gun club, and this was like a classic place. He had to drive way out in the woods in south, in, on the south coast of Massachusetts in Dartmouth. And we were like driving down, you know, dirt roads, and we get to this place, and, you know, it, it, it had all of the cliches. It had like antlers on the wall <laughs> and guys with, you know, like flannel shirts and big thick necks. And they'll cry around, and here I was, the congressional candidate. I was one of the people scheduled to speak. And, and I, I got up. I made my presentation. I spoke about my support of the Second Amendment. I talked about how I felt that um, if, if the Jews of Germany had had guns, there never would have been a Holocaust. My advisor said, don't mention Jews. I mean, these people, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't know how to understand that. But anyway... Toward the end of the presentation, I mentioned that I thought that um, I, I agreed with police chiefs around the country, and certainly in Boston, who have said that um, semi-automatic and automatic weaponry in the hands of average people is too dangerous. You know, they're going to come in, they're street sweepers, you know, they're going to come in and uh, blow people up, a Bushmaster, like what this guy had. And um, I don't understand why average people need to have those sorts of heavy weapons. And I could tell you the room was – they were shocked. Uh, ben told me that he – Ben kind of grabbed my shoulder and he said, let's get out of here. And like, we were both heading out for the door. Um, they were really mad at me. So I've taken positions on this that are not popular with people who are pro-gun. At the same time, I understand that on the other side you have people – who advocate the complete abolition of private ownership of guns. And that's why they it's radicalized the problem. And and I, I'm against that. I think the people need to have guns. They should be trained, though, in terms of how to use them. They should be licensed. But that is something that I think we should encourage in this society. We should have gun clubs. We should have gun training in schools. We should have young people carrying guns who know how to use them and who have gotten a license not yet but by young i'm talking i'm not talking teenagers i mean i mean well even then though i mean you know go you know they should be able to go to a um, you know a um, a firing range and experience guns and learn how to use them because if we have that going on like we used to in the society will be a lot safer. But, I, I mean, putting that issue aside, I mean, the, the issues that I think are not being discussed, mainly because we don't know a lot about it, is who these people are who are committing these mass murders. 
This is something that has not happened before. It's something that's new. The first big one was Columbine in 1999. Since then, it's become an epidemic. That's not to say there wasn't violence in school before this. You know, they're, they're, you'd have the occasional fist fight. Maybe somebody might even bring a knife to school. I don't think it. I don't think it's likely that anyone was ever murdered at school. Although it may have happened. I think if it had happened, it would have been huge news. But you know, there was violence. I mean, I, I'm not proud to say this, but I recall when I was in junior high school. Um, being not directly involved in a situation, but there was a situation where somebody that I knew, a friend, was uh, challenged to a fist fight by another kid in the school, and they agreed to meet after school in a field nearby. And uh, I recall we all went out there, and and we had, one, you know, we were friends with the, one of the kids, and then the other people were friends with the other kid, and we all went out there, and we basically. Um, put them into like a ring together like they were two bulldogs. <laughs> you know, it was like a, a cockfight. And they started punching and, and uh, we, you know, and I, I mean, I kind of stood there on the sidelines. I mean, I'm ashamed looking back at us. I mean, we all have these things we look back at and we kind of cringe. This is one of those for me. And I, I, I feel really regretful about it. But uh, but I was there. And, and, and we were, everybody was very emotional. People were really cranked up. You know, it was very, like, uh, upsetting, and it was very, you know, hot. And these two boys basically pummeled each other until one of them fell down. Uh, neither of them was seriously hurt, but they both were pretty bloodied, I remember. So, I mean, why am I discussing this? Because, you know, there, there's always been violence in schools occasionally. But I don't think there was ever a situation. It would never have occurred to any of us. To have somebody go into school with a gun and shoot people dead, never. It just wasn't something that people thought of. It wasn't part of the public consciousness at that time. It was kind of like gay marriage. It was, wasn't something that anybody even could conceive until it was invented, basically, in the, in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Well, I mean, this violence in school, and I'm not comparing the two, by the way. I've got nothing against gay marriage. I wish anyone who wants to enter into a marriage has my blessing. You know, I mean, I even said once to Barney Frank that if he chooses to marry a man, I'll, I'll, send, a, I'll, send, a, I'll send a gift. I mean, it's not, it's not, that's not, so I don't mean to in any way compare. I'm simply pointing out that the idea of people killing people at school was not something that anybody had ever thought of doing until Columbine. And since then, it's become an epidemic. So this situation is not um, isolated. It's an epidemic. It's something that is happening every year now. Uh, on my blog site, Chuck Moore Speaks, my good friend Sam Blumenfeld put up a good article documenting all of the major cases of this from Columbine up till today and uh, with the details, who, who did it, how it was done, how many people killed. Uh, you might want to check that out. It's on Chuck Moore Speaks. We talked about the aspect of this that included the um, ingestion of controlled substances, psych drugs in this case, that nine out of ten of these people who did these shootings were taking some kind of a prescribed psych drug, whether it be child Prozac, 
whether it be lithium, whatever. And I think it's safe to say that that has a lot to do with it. The other issue that came up in the coverage of this case, and again, this is something that I'm not, I haven't looked into, not because I don't have the time to look into it, but because I find it too depressing and too upsetting to look into it. Every time I go to the computer and I start doing it, I feel paralyzed. But I'm going to get to it. But it's such an unpleasant and ugly subject. And that is the fact that this person in Newtown, Connecticut, who committed the mass murder, I don't want to use his name, um, that he was into this goth movement. Now, again, I don't claim to know that much about it. I know that um, I talked about it briefly with Sam Blumenfeld on this program the other day. Um, I know what it is. I know what it is when I see it. Um, I think that uh, several of the people involved in these killings have been associated with it. Um, you know, I'm sure that I'm not suggesting that everyone who's involved in it is a killer. I don't think most of them are. I think most of them are just young people who want to be nonconformists and they want to. I understand that. I was like that, you know, in many ways. I mean, I, I that you know, I get, I get that. So I'm not, I'm not trying to make a blanket condemnation here. But I think that what possibly is going on is that uh, either some people are influenced by some of the so-called goth um, modalities, ideas, whatever you want to call it, in a way that is more profound than others. And then there's the other possibility, which is that there's a small segment within the goth community that is consciously involved with Satanism. Now, again, I am just beginning to research this. So I don't want to make anyone angry at me, um, but uh, I, I just I think that a little digging, and I'm probably going to to find a lot of very interesting uh, things in, in that area. Um, my opinion at this time is that there is this that, that at the very core of this so-called goth movement, to the point that it is a movement, and I'm not even saying it is is a satanic cult and that things like killing people in such a manner it has all the earmarkings of a satanic activity um, it has the brainwashing it has the zombie like approach by people it has the inversion of morality the turning on the head I mean none of these people were religious people in this sense, Mike Huckabee might be right in that uh, stripping out faith from the schools has set a stage for these anti-faith ideas. And certainly Gothism, I think if there's one thing we can say about it, and I may stand corrected because, again, I haven't brought myself into the research, but my understanding is that you can say that it is definitely anti-Christian, anti-religion, anti-Judaic, um, you know, anti-Muslim for that matter. And um, I, I think that it's safe to say that. Uh, whether or not it's actually satanic in the active sense, I haven't been able to determine it yet, but I have a feeling it is. And I have a feeling that, again, most of the people who embrace it are not conscious of that, but they are in it, and they are influenced by it. 
and that it has a lot to do with these killings. Now, you know, this is not the kind of thing that just happens by accident. I, I mean, maybe it's part of, you know, it's the part of me that uh, has been doing talk radio for a long time, maybe too long, but um, I do see some bigger conspiracy here. I do see it. I think that these are not accidents. These are people who have been programmed. This is like the suicide bombers in Israel. You know, they're not just showing up one day to decide to do this. There is planning involved. There is premeditation. There is certain things that people learn. I mean, it's not normal for anybody. I mean, you know, they say, oh, well, he was mentally ill. Well, fine. Mental illness is not new. You know, I mean, I heard someone on the air the other day say, well, he has a combination of Asperger's syndrome and autism. Okay. Was Asperger's syndrome, is that something that's new? It's been around forever. So is isn't autism. But yet people with Asperger's or with autism weren't killing their fellow students, at least not until recently. So those are not adequate. There is something more going on. You know, this gets into, uh, you know, some of the historic issues around the cult of the assassins, which existed in ancient, well, not in, existence, in medieval Persia. It was a cult. It was in Muslim Persia, that um, in which uh, this very very wealthy sheikh or sheikh he would uh, have his agents find some young man who was living in a village somewhere who was poor and who was misdirected and who didn't really have much going for him. They would sweep him up. They would take him to this fabulous palace. In the, in the mountains near the Caspian Sea where he would get all the food and sex and drugs and everything he wanted, you know, music and all the pleasures, all the earthly pleasures that you can imagine for many, many weeks. It was like paradise. And then he was told that he would have to leave unless he was willing to perform a murder unless he was willing to perform an assassination. In fact, the word assassination comes from the cult of the assassins, or the cult of, and it's also the word hashish, by the way, because the word hashish comes from the word hashishim, or assassin, because they used hashish. They were known for that. I mean, that's how they got high. And so the person was also promised that if he did commit the murder, the soul of the murdered person would go into his body and he would have super strength and super awareness and and, and there was in other words there was this conditioning that went on to the point where it was almost like a a brainwashing to the point where he was prepared mentally to, to perform and physically to perform the act of murder and then he'd be sent out, and sure enough, he'd murder the victim. I mean, he was, he was told who to go after, and he'd do it. And then um, he would become a permanent, probably a permanent resident of this, uh, of this palace. That is, if he survived it, he probably would be killed. But, you know, I'm not sure exactly what would happen afterwards. But I wonder, and again, I'm not trying to weave a conspiracy here, but it seems to me that these people might be part of some sort of a neo-modern cult of the assassins and that means that there's someone behind it somebody who's powerful and rich 
who is brainwashing these people to do this? And, uh, you know, I, again, I, I plan to investigate it to the limited ability I have to do so, which is really nothing more than going deeply online, even though I, I, I'm kind of reluctant to because it's such a nasty subject. So I'm not making any flat statements here. But I do think that when there's a situation like this where our children – our young boys and girls, you know, and we're talking about six years old, are being mowed down. We have an obligation to investigate this and to not leave a single stone unturned. That's how I see it. To do anything less than that, we would be abrogating our responsibility as a civilized people. We would be abrogating our right to live in a free nation. We have a moral obligation to do it, and I intend to do it. I would urge others to do the same. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening this afternoon. My name is Chuck Morse, and I shall return, God willing, tomorrow at the usual time. Check out my blog site, Chuck Morse Speaks. You can order my book, The Monkey Trial, Post-Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Evolutionary Politics in the Post-Traditional Age. And thanks again for listening. Have a good afternoon, everyone. <laughs>